If you don't have a copy of our notes, uh, please put your hand up and someone will bring you a copy of the notes. As you come in of a morning, grab your name badge and grab a copy of notes so you can see where we're going this morning. I don't know if it's quite a gazetta. Is that the Swahili word? Gazetta? Gazette. All right. I'm practicing my Swahili. So, tafadala baridi maji, which means, please, can I have cold water? Is that right? Good. Everybody say, tafadali baridi maji. No, don't try. <laughs> please, can I have cold water? My name is David. I have the great privilege of being the pastor here. Well, for my Samoan friends, I think it's Fafeao, close. And for my Tongan friends, it's Fafakao. Is that Fafikao? No? Fafiku? Close. Close. I'm the pastor here. It's my great privilege to be here this morning to speak with you and to share the good news of Jesus. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, starting at the very beginning and working our way through. And so for a number of weeks, we've had different firsts. We had our first introduction to Jesus, our first impression, Jesus' first words. Last week, we spoke about Jesus' first followers. Today, first contact, first contact with the enemy. Uh, but the, the thing is that Jesus and his first words define everything else that we will see through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his first words, the first words in his gospel. Let's read them together, please. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And this will be the repeated refrain, refrain throughout the rest of the gospel. Whenever Jesus gets up to talk or to teach, he'll be talking about this, the fact that the kingdom of God has come near and calling on people to repent, to turn away from their sins and follow. This is his repeated refrain. This is his good news that he presents to people. His kingdom is the kingdom of God that is coming on earth, that is within our grasp, that is within us, that we can turn to Jesus, we can turn to God and experience his kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is God and his people living together the way he always intended. God and his people living together the way he always intended. Peace with God, peace with each other. That's the kingdom of God. Paul puts it like this. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. And we drew a little picture to remind ourselves of, of what the kingdom of God looks like. So if someone ever says to you, what did Jesus teach? You could draw a simple picture like this. The time, the clock in the middle is fulfilled. The kingdom, the crown at the top, the kingdom of God has come near, is here on earth with us now. Repent. Turn away from your sins and believe. Grab hold. Trust in Jesus. This is the kingdom message, the message we can share with other people. But Jesus is a man presenting his kingdom, and he comes, and today we're going to encounter a different kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of evil. And Jesus encounters that and defeats it utterly. But first of all, as we read through the scriptures, as the children read to us those tricky words, that agape, is it agape or agape? How do I say? Agape. Depends where you went to school. Agape. Okay, I'll get that right. Agape. Uh, as he read those tricky words for us this morning, they went to Capernaum, a city on the side of the lake where uh, many of the disciples lived. When the Sabbath came, they gathered into the synagogue and Jesus began to teach. The synagogue is a, is a great word that just may, literally means assembly. 
or the place where you can gather together. And you see that I've got a picture there of my faith fingers, and we talked about this last week. I've been told that last week's message was like binge-watching Netflix. We had three or four messages all in a row. I promise I won't do that today. Today it's just two messages all in a row. Our faith fingers teach us special ways to connect with God. And so you might like to hold your, your left hand out in front of you. Most people have five fingers. If you don't have five fingers, God bless you. I apologize that you'll have to invent an extra finger. And if you've, only, if you've got less than five fingers, tell me why. I'd love to find out. But five fingers is the, is the normal that most people have. But our fingers represent different ways we can connect with God. The first is a private way, that just you and God alone, meeting with God alone. The second way, the ring finger, the trusted, having a person, one or two people who you can really trust and go really deep with. Important to grow in your faith, to have a brother or a sister or someone who we can go really deep with. We spoke about that last week. Why did Jesus choose the two sets of brothers? So they'd have their brother with them when things got tough. The third one is the small group, a group of five or six or 10 or 12 people, 15, probably is stretching it a bit much, a group of people where you can know everybody's name and love them and care for them and be close to them. And when someone goes missing, you notice. That's important to grow. And so Jesus had his 12 disciples. The next finger is the mission finger, where we go and do something. We point people to Jesus, or we go and achieve a goal. And the thumb represents church, where we gather as a group, maybe 50 people, maybe 100 people, maybe 1,000 people. We gather to worship. There are things we can do in church on a Sunday that you can't do alone with Jesus. But there are things you can do alone with Jesus you can't do in church. And so each of these five fingers is important to grow spiritually. And if you're only using one of those five fingers, then whatever you're holding in your hand isn't being held as tight as if you used all five. So think about that. Which of these five fingers do you use to grow in your spiritual life? You don't have to meet with a group every day. You don't have to have that trusted person you meet with every day. But do you have them in your life? This morning, Jesus comes into the synagogue which is the church of his time when the Jewish people would gather for teaching and for worship and for prayer. And so Jesus says the church is important. The synagogue, the gathering together is important. The word synagogue comes from the Greek. It's just the word that means assembly. Sin, together, ago, to gather. So the people gathered together in an assembly. The Hebrew word is the word bet knesset. Bet knesset, which means the house of the assembly. And even today, the Israeli parliament is called the Knesset. And if you listen to the news and follow uh, Israeli politics, they're having an interesting time in the Knesset at the moment, where they've had, I think they're having three elections in the course of one year to gather their people into the Knesset. That means just the, the assembly. For us, our word is church. Our word comes out of another Greek word, ecclesia kuriaki. Ecclesia means uh, the called out. And kuriaki means those who belong to the Lord. Okay, kuriaki, those who belong to the Lord. These are the Greek words, and over time they became translated into English, the word church, kuriaki, church. You can sort of imagine how over the space of 2,000 years, years, kuriaki would turn into church, going via German and different languages on the way. So that's that's what we are, the church. We're the people who belong to the Lord. That's what the word church means. Those who belong to the Lord. 
And so the gathering together of these people, we achieve and do things on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning or a Sunday night or whenever it is people gather for church. We gather for church as a group all in together. We achieve many things. So our faith fingers, the church is important. If you're only coming to church and not doing the other four, you won't grow in your faith as strongly as if you did all. And so often for, with teenagers and young people, we make them come to church and then when they don't, and we don't make them do the others. We don't encourage them to do the others. And so when they get old enough where they don't have to come to church anymore, they've got nothing else to hold their faith. And so often young people, when they stop, if that's all they've been building their faith on is coming to church, when they don't have to come to church anymore, we lose them. It's important to encourage our young people to be part of groups and to pray and to do those different things and go on mission. It's important for us old people to do the same as well. Church. What do we do in church? Well, we teach. Jesus taught people and gave them a message. So it's what we're doing here this morning. You're listening to me speak to you, opening the word of God. Teaching is important. We worship. When we gather as a large group and sing, there's a great atmosphere and we feel the presence of God more easily than perhaps if we're singing alone at home or in with two or three. In a group of large people, we can worship the Lord in a beautiful way, use each other's gifts. We gather for inspiration and motivation. We gather to hear what God is saying to us for today. What does he want us to do this week? We share that amongst each other. We encourage one another. By gathering together in a large group, we build each other up. We encourage one another. We hear the word of God speaking to us. And then we hear the words of our brothers and sisters saying, How are you? God bless you. We coordinate and we cooperate. We do things together. It's, we can do things together as a church that it would be difficult for an individual to do or a small group to do. And so it's important to gather as a church because we can coordinate, we can cooperate, we can use each other's gifts to the full to expand the kingdom of God. And the last word there is proclamation. We can proclaim the gospel. We can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so church is a great way to invite people into the kingdom. You say to them, come for lunch on Sunday. Oh, yes, I'd love to come for lunch. Before you come for lunch, come to church. That's a great way to do that. In a few weeks' time, as we come closer to Easter, you might like to think on Easter Sunday or Palm Sunday, invite your friends and family for lunch. Say, it's Easter. I want to bless you with a big lunch on Easter Sunday. And before you come for lunch, come to church. The gospel will be proclaimed. The good news of Jesus will be proclaimed. It's a good opportunity to win people to the kingdom. So these are some of the things we do in church. There are many, many others. But this is what church is for. If you think that church is enough to meet all of your other spiritual needs, I'm sorry, that's not the case. And it was never designed to be the case. Church is part of a full and rich diet of spiritual expression. But it's an important part. It's probably the carbohydrates of church. So Jesus comes into the synagogue, the assembly, and he teaches them with authority. And it says there in the scriptures, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In Jesus' day, the rabbi, the teacher, would stand up in front of the people and he would say, well, rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says that, and rabbi someone else says this. And they would lay out all the different things of all the great teachers of the past. And then they'd say, make up your mind what you think. 
But when Jesus got up to teach, he said, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He would quote from the Old Testament. He would draw things out of the Old Testament. But when he spoke, he said, this is the way it is. He didn't quote from the great rabbis and the great teachers and the great thinkers of his age. He said, this is the way it is. This is the way God wants you to live. And he spoke it with authority, with power, with meaning, with declaration. And the people were amazed because this was something new. How astounding that this man would stand up in front of them and said, you have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, anyone who hates his brother in his heart has already committed murder. And so Jesus stands up and he takes the Old Testament law and he says, you've heard it said, but I say. And that's astounding for any preacher to stand up and say, the Bible says this, but I say that. If I were to say that this morning, I don't think I'd have a job for very long. And fair enough too. But when Jesus stands up and proclaims this message, he does it with the authority of God on earth. He's writing new scripture, even as he speaks to them. He's teaching exactly what God is saying. And so Jesus is demonstrating his authority as a teacher to proclaim the good news of God. Not as the teachers of the law, but with his authority. And Jesus is teaching the crowd. He's teaching those who've gathered for worship. In the Jewish synagogue, the teacher would sit, which I think is a great idea. It gets very wearying, teaching, standing up. The teacher would sit down in a position of authority and teach the people. That way he could go on for a couple of hours without getting worn out. Us Protestants insist on our preachers standing up in the hopes that he'll fall over before we do. Um, But Jesus was preaching and teaching, and then all of a sudden he's interrupted, quite rudely interrupted in the midst of his teaching. We don't even know exactly what he was teaching. His sermon isn't written down, but I guarantee it had something to do with the kingdom of God. I guarantee it had something to do with the reality that God's kingdom had come close and that people should repent and believe because that's his message. And so we have Messiah interrupted. And the scriptures say, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You can just imagine it, can't you? A crowd of hundreds of people crammed into a building, probably smaller than this, all crammed in, and then suddenly someone stands up and starts yelling at the preacher. Quite an interruption. And so we'll talk about some of these things here this morning. First of all, the words there, possessed by. Possessed by. It's not really in the Greek. The word possessed by isn't really there. In the Greek, it just says there was a man there who had or who was with an unclean spirit. The King James, the RSV, some of the older translations just say there was a man there with an unclean spirit. Some of the more modern English translations put in the word possessed by because it sounds more exciting. He's possessed by an unclean spirit. And sometimes we let Hollywood determine what the Bible says because Hollywood movies make a big deal about what it means to be possessed by a demon or possessed by an unclean spirit. And some of you in your misspent youths may have seen horrible movies about people who've been possessed by demons. If that's you, then come up later to repent. I personally have never seen those movies. They're far too scary for me. Somewhere along the line, the word possessed by just meant he had it, okay? He had an unclean spirit. Because when we hear the word possessed by, sometimes we think 
that means the unclean spirit has the man. Yes? I possess this book. The book doesn't possess me. It's my book. It's in my hand. But in the old, sometimes the word possessed by meant he was a man there who had a demon or had an unclean spirit, an impure spirit. I keep saying demon. That's not what the scriptures say. If I say demon, I mean impure spirit. We'll come to that in a moment. Possessed by implies that this man had no control, that the demon was, the impure spirit was in control of him. That's not what the scriptures say. Scriptures say he just had it. He had it with him. It's almost like he had it in his pocket. The man didn't belong to the impure spirit. The impure spirit belonged to the man. So we need to be careful about letting movies and things like that define what the scriptures say. Being possessed by a demon, being possessed by an impure spirit, isn't what you see in Hollywood movies necessarily. That leads to the next question. What is an impure spirit? The scriptures say impure spirit. Some of your translations, your modern translations, might use the word demon there or other things, but impure spirit. Why impure spirit? Again, we'll have some Greek. So pneuma is the Greek word that means spirit or breath. And akathon means unclean or impure. The word kathon means pure. You put an A in front, it means unclean. Akathon, unclean, impure. And so he has this, you might say he had bad breath. That could be one translation. There was a man there who had bad breath. That's not what it means at all. But that's what it could translate to. There was a man there with an unclean spirit, something inside him that's not right, something within him that makes him speak these words and bullies him and treats him terribly, makes an embarrassment of him. And so some questions come out that we could ask in our in our world. What are these things? What is it that Jesus is talking, encountering here? What is this? Is it a demon? Is it a fallen angel? Is it some other sort of thing? What is it? And the answer is, we're not really sure. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what these creatures are or what these things are. There are hints here and there. And so different teachers will have different ideas on this. Uh, Derek Prince is a great Bible teacher, and he has some very interesting ideas on what these creatures are, what these things are. Um, what are they? The Bible doesn't tell us what they are exactly, because it's not our business. It's not our business to go mucking around in all that stuff. That's nothing to do with us. That's God's business. He knows all those things. We just trust him in what he says. Are they real? There's... Uh, a great danger in the Christian church that as we become more and more Western and more and more logical and more and more reasonable, that we start to say, no, these things aren't real. They don't really exist. That's fine, but Jesus acted as though they were real. And I'm not in a position to correct Jesus' theology. Jesus acted as though these things were real, and so we need to do something similar. But at the same time, we don't need to be saying, well, behind every rock and behind every pot plant, there's an unclean spirit. These things aren't necessarily everywhere, but neither do they not exist. There's got to be a happy middle ground, or an unhappy middle ground in this case, between they don't exist and they're everywhere. Somewhere in the middle is, yeah, these things are real. We're in a room in the synagogue here, maybe 100 people, maybe 1,000 people. One of them has the unpure spirit. So could we say maybe one people in a hundred or one person in a thousand has them? Maybe. We're not given enough information on that. 
The next question is there, can Christians have unclean spirits? And this is one of those things that uh, there is debate about within the church. If you listen to someone like Reinhard Bonnke, the great African evangelist uh, who died just a few weeks ago. Did anyone know Reinhard Bonnke and heard that name? God bless him. What a wonderful man. Uh, a German man who was the African evangelist. Uh, he would say, no, once you're properly filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot have an unclean spirit. It can't, can't be possible. That was what he said. And that's what he taught. Other Christians like John Wimber, uh, John Wimber was once asked, can Christians have demons? And he said, yes, but they make lousy pets. He was saying, yes, you can, but you don't want them. They're rubbish. Get rid of it. You don't have to have them. You can have them. It's not a good thing. So between those two positions, I probably am the more of the John Wimber side than the Reinhard Bonnke because I've seen people who are Christians and devout and faithful and pious who just have something in them that's not right and they need some special help to get rid of it. And so there's lots of questions about, and there's probably a thousand more questions about these things, but again, this isn't necessarily our business and all the different levels and different kinds and what they can do. We need to be aware of some of these things, but ultimately we need to be most aware that Jesus is a thousand million billion times stronger than the devil. I'm glad I'm friends with Jesus. I'm glad I'm friends with Jesus. I'm glad I'm friends with Jesus. Jesus sets me free. This spirit, this impure spirit cries out and interrupts the meeting, interrupts the teaching, interrupts the Messiah and shouts out these things and asks a whole bunch of questions. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And of course, we know that he's right. Jesus is the Holy One of God. But Jesus doesn't want to hear that from the impure spirit. It's bad advertising. He doesn't want the impure spirit telling people who he is. He's not quite ready for that. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we'll see that Jesus sometimes heals people and says, don't tell anyone. Shh, keep it quiet. There are things that he's trying to keep quiet. He's stewarding the mystery. Because if he tells everybody too much too soon, they'll kill him before he's ready. He has to keep the timing just right so he can die at the right time for the right purpose. And he's got other things to achieve in between. So Jesus doesn't put up with for very long. He says, stop it. But this gives us a hint as to what these impure spirits do. They suggest things to us. They put thoughts into our heads. And sometimes they call people to call things out they shouldn't. And sometimes we have this idea that every voice we hear in our head belongs to us. I want to tell you that that's not the case. If you've got a persistent little voice inside your head that says, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, or I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid, or whatever it is, I'm going to tell you there's a good chance that's an impure spirit. Maybe they're sitting on your shoulder whispering into your ear. They never say, you're fat. They always say, I'm fat, so that you think the voice is from you. And it probably isn't. Uh, one thing you can do is just when you hear that repetitive voice in your head, you can say, in the name of Jesus, I command you to stop acting as though you're me. And that makes a big difference. Because suddenly the little voice in the ear doesn't say, I'm fat. It suddenly starts saying, you're fat. You're fat. And you go, hang on a second, that's not me, that's you. And then you can have a proper 
Uh, go and see your pastor. Come and see me, and we can work on chucking that voice out of your head. Or you can do it yourself. Just claim it in the name of Jesus and say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Get out. These things happen. And so this is a suggestion of what, what these impure spirits do. And there's probably a lots of other things they do as well. But most people, I think, hear these voices in their head saying things, and I must stop immediately and say, there's such a thing as mental illness. I'm not talking about that. There are people who have chemical deficiencies and medical situations and all that. God bless them. God heal them. There's medicine. There's therapy. There's all the things you need to do for that. That's separate completely to this. I am not saying that everyone with a mental illness has an impure spirit or a demon. That's not the case. Okay? Does everyone understand me? Have you all heard me saying that? If you're on medication from a doctor, do not stop taking the medication unless the doctor tells you to stop. I don't care how many times you've been prayed on and how many demons you've had cast out of you. If you're on medication from your doctor, keep taking it till the doctor says stop. That's his realm of authority, the physical, the chemical, or her. Doctors can be ladies. That's her realm of authority. God bless you. If you're on medication, keep taking it until the doctor says to stop. We trust in the wisdom of God given through our doctors in the medical society. But if you've taken the medication and you've been to the therapy and you've done the things and the problem's persisting, eh, maybe it's a demon. Maybe it's an impure spirit. Maybe it's a spiritual issue. Come and talk to us. Here's the Messiah interrupted, and then we see the Messiah in action. The Messiah in action. Jesus is not putting up with this. Jesus never met an impure spirit he liked, and he never met an impure spirit he couldn't beat. Never. Didn't happen. Nowhere in the scriptures. And so Jesus says to the impure spirit, be quiet, get out. That's it. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't have a conversation. He doesn't say, well, if you leave me alone, leave that man alone Tuesday through Thursday, and then you can have him on the weekends. No. Jesus does not do deals with the devil. He says, out. Be quiet. Get out. He gives instructions. And Jesus is training his disciples to do the same. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. I think the NIV is here making it a little bit more dramatic. The scriptures just said he convulsed. He shook. It doesn't say violently. The man, he shook the man. He convulsed and came out of him with a loud yell. And Jesus deals with the situation and says, that's it. We're done. I'm not negotiating with you. Get out. And so if you've done deals with the devil or if you feel you've got a problem, come to Jesus because Jesus is a million, thousand, billion times stronger than the devil. It is my habit to stop and ask if there are any questions. I didn't have any questions from last week. Can you believe that? Perhaps you were scared that I'd go on for an extra 20 minutes this week. No questions last week after that. Interesting message last week. Are there any questions this morning about what we've spoken about today? All done? All silent? If there are any questions, please email me. My phone number's there on the page. You can get in touch with me. Yes, mate. Good man. I knew you'd have a question. Nice and loud. How is it that the people of the time knew it was an unclean spirit? 
because they'd engaged with this before. They'd seen this before. The Jewish people had people whose job it was to cast the impure spirits out of people. They had their own exorcists, and they would go about it in their own way. And so they were used to this. If somebody stands up in church and starts yelling like an interesting person, they would go, there's something wrong with that guy. That's John. He doesn't normally shout like that. wonder what's got into him. It must be an impure spirit. And so the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish people would have their own way of dealing with this, as all cultures do. All cultures have their way of dealing with these impure spirits. A lot less effective than the way Jesus deals with them. But they do. No, good question. Thank you. Any others? No? Good. Please, I do as encouraged. Yes, send through a question. Oh, one more. Good man. So why is it today we're so reluctant to accept the reality of the impure spirits? Yes. We're going to blame some philosophers, but mostly in the Western world. This is a Western problem that we don't acknowledge the reality of these things. We've got friends here from Africa, and they would say in their culture, yeah, we know these things are real because you've seen them. Yes? Would you agree? And people from the islands maybe have different engagements with these things. For many of us rational Western logical people, if I can't taste it, touch it, feel it, it's not real. And that's just wrong. That's just wrong. There's so much more, Shakespeare says, there's more to this world than is dreamt of in our philosophy. So I think of a lot of his rational history things, and so we often see these people with these spiritual problems and we lump them in with the folk who have chemical problems and we stick it all in together and try and solve it all as one. And one can lead to the other and this can lead to that and so on and so on and so on. But there are spiritual realities in the world. There are spiritual realities just because we can't see it and touch it and taste it doesn't mean it's not real. Thank you for that question. Jesus deals with this situation and he kicks the demon out, kicks the impure spirit out, and he goes on teaching. He's not going to let this interruption stop his important message. He deals with it, he solves it, he goes on. He finishes his message, he walks out the synagogue. And the scriptures go on. The people were also amazed. They asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. They're still amazed at his teaching. That's the thing that amazes them most. Dealing with the impure spirit, that's the cherry on top of the cake. Okay? That's an English expression that means that's the thing that's even better than what's underneath, just to make it perfect on top. He even gives spirits to the impure spirits and they obey him. That's the bonus. That's the steak knives, you know? Buy this and you get a set of steak knives. Jesus has come with this brand new teaching. And as the bonus, he can also deal with the impure spirits. That's a good deal. And so they're excited, not just because Jesus is dealing with the impure spirit. They've seen that before, but Jesus does it more efficiently and more quickly and it's done. They're still amazed at his teaching. That he stands up and says, this is what God wants. This is God's message for you today. And that's what amazes them. He even deals with impure spirits. And the news about him spreads all over, the, all over Galilee. Christians have known this for a long time, that this is a reality of these things, that there are these, whatever they are, these impure spirits at work in the world, 
And one of the writers who wrote about this most is a guy named Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. And his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, uh, is, is a, great, a great hymn. And it talks about this reality. He talks about the devil and the reality of the devil. But he makes sure to make sure the devil is squashed under the feet of Jesus. So in his hymn, he talks about um, the, the devil. He says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. You know? Uh, For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus is the one who defeats him. He talks about the fact that though this world is filled with demons, we will not fear because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. And in the second verse of the hymn, uh, the words are there on the screen. Did we in our... I probably won't sing it. This is a tricky one to sing. Do you know this one? Will you sing with me if I sing it? Okay, I'm getting an enthusiastic nod from some of our Germans. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Martin Luther points out that Jesus is Lord Sabaoth. That's the old Hebrew name for the Lord, the King of Battle, the Lord of Hosts, we talk about in the old King James, the Lord of Hosts, the King, the General of Heaven's Armies. And Jesus is Lord Sabaoth. He is the king. He is the general of heaven's armies. And he must win the battle. He can't not. Jesus is a thousand million billion times stronger than the devil. There is no competition. Come to him. Come to him. Make him your king. The rain is dying down. I'll tell a quick story. Paul's told a quick story. I'll tell a quick story. This is a Reinhard Bonnke story. The German man who was the evangelist to Africa, and it's believed that 50 or 60 or 70 million people were converted under his ministry. An amazing person. If you've not heard his messages, Google him on YouTube. He tells a story like this. There once was a man who had a house. He built himself a beautiful, fine, two-story house. It had a view over the river. He was very proud of his house. But every day the devil would come and break in and torment him and torture him. Every day this would happen. One day the man hears a knock on the door. It's the Lord Jesus at the door. The man says, oh, Lord Jesus, please come into my house. I'll prepare a room for you. Here is a beautiful room for you. You may stay in this room as much as you like. God bless you. Thank you for coming to visit me, Lord Jesus. That night, the devil broke into the house and fought with the man all night long, tortured him and beat him and abused him. And in the morning, he finally pushed the devil out of the door and shut the door behind him. And then he went and said, this is very strange. The Lord Jesus lives in my house. Why didn't he help me? So he went to the room where Jesus was and knocked on the door and said, Lord Jesus, did you not hear me fighting with the devil? Why didn't you come and help me? The Lord Jesus said, you invited me into your house and you gave me this room. So when I'm in this room, this is the room. The rest of the house is yours. 
Ah, says the man, I understand. Lord Jesus, I understand. Here, you may have the top story of my house. The entire of the top story is yours. Do with it what you will. And the Lord Jesus says, thank you very much, and moves into the top story of his life. The next day, the devil comes and breaks into the house and tortures the man again and abuses him and is cruel to him and treats him badly. And after fighting with the man, with him all day, finally, the man pushes the devil out of the door and says, get out. And then he goes, this is very strange. The Lord Jesus lives in my house. Why did I have to fight with the devil all day? He climbs up the stairs and he says, Lord Jesus, did you not hear me fighting with the devil downstairs? The Lord Jesus says, yes, but you invited me to live in the top story of your house. And the devil was downstairs. Ah, says the man, now I understand. Lord Jesus, this is your house. You may go into every room. You decide who comes in and goes out. It is all yours. You may do with it what you like. The next day comes early in the morning. There's a scratching at the door. The devil is trying to break in. And the man is asleep in his bed and he hears the scratching. And he goes, oh, no, it's the devil again. He's going to break in. He's going to torture me. He's going to abuse me. Oh, what am I going to do? But then he hears footsteps coming down the stairs and footsteps going down the hallway. And the man gets out of his bed and sticks his head around the wall. And there is the Lord Jesus going to the front door. The Lord Jesus opens the front door and there is the devil standing before him. The devil takes one look at the Lord Jesus, bows very low and says, I'm sorry, this is the wrong house. The point of that beautiful story of Reinhard Bonnke is this. Give everything to Jesus. Give it all to him. Give it all to him. Do not give the devil a threshold, a, a foothold. Don't give him an inch. Give it all to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you this morning for Jesus and who he is and what he shows us. We thank you, Lord God, this morning that Jesus is the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. Father God, we thank you for that. We thank you that he is a million, billion, trillion times stronger than the devil. Father God, if there's anyone here this morning who feels they might be troubled by an unclean spirit, speak to them. Give them your hope. Come, Lord Jesus, and cast that out. Lord Jesus, give them the courage to come to their brothers and sisters and ask for help. Father God, this morning, if there's anyone here who hasn't given every part of their lives to the Lord Jesus, speak to them now by your Holy Spirit. Draw them closer to you. We pray all this in his precious and powerful name because he must win the battle. Amen. Amen.